0: Welcome to Tell Me a Story I Don't Know in a special presentation of Encore Week. We look back to some of the most popular, entertaining, and revealing interviews, including ones with Bob Costas, Mike Greenberg, Mike Wilbon, Sarah Kustak, and Eddie Olczyk. Encore Week is proudly presented by Dynamic Manufacturing, awarded the General Motors Supplier of the Year 23 times. Find them at DynamicManufacturingInc.com. And by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago Hot Dog and an institution since 1893. You can find them at ViennaBeef.com. And now we go back to February of 2021 and our thoroughly enjoyable interview with Greenie, ESPN's Mike Greenberg.
1: A metrosexual was a much nicer word um, for what they used to call people like me, which was a narcissistic pretty boy. Um, (laughs) I'd much rather be a metrosexual.
0: Greeny is not a narcissistic pretty boy. On the contrary, he's established himself as one of the most popular and learned journalists in the industry. He currently hosts Get Up, a fast-paced early morning show on ESPN's TV side, then quickly reverts to radio, where he settles in to deliver two hours of Greeny. He spent 18 successful years doing mornings with Mike Golick, but it all started here in Chicago. His ties to the city are numerous, as are the books he's written, six, and... He danced at my wedding, and I at his. So, tell me a story I don't know.
1: Well, I'll tell you a story you may not remember, and we'll see. (laughs) But my very, very, very first day in this industry, in the broadcasting business, I had just graduated from Northwestern, and through a connection of my father's, I got a job working one day a week at the old WMAQ news Radio, which was on 670 on the AM dial at that time, where the score has subsequently moved to. And the, we used to work out of the merchandise march. Mm-hmm. And my, literally my very first day, I came in to just sort of observe. I was working one day a week, and the rest of the week I was working in a restaurant. But my very first day when I came in to observe what was going on and what my responsibilities would be and all the rest of that, my job was basically to just help out the sports anchor of the day, however I might be able to be of assistance. And the idea was that particularly on Saturdays, this was in the fall, on Saturdays I would keep track of all the college football scores and everything else. But my very first day, the sports anchor of the day was George Offman. (laughs) And you let me come into the studio with you. I still remember it. We would sit in this newsroom, and you'd have to walk down a little hallway to get into the studio where you would go on the air. And I said to you, is it okay if I come with you? And you said, yes, I don't mind an audience. And I walked <laughs> with you down the little hallway and I sat in the room quietly and the news anchor threw it to you with the sports. And you did two minutes, two and a half minutes, whatever it was. And I was just sitting there watching and I remember thinking to myself, like, that's my dream. If I could just get that job, if I could just be the person who does that, who comes on twice an hour and gives you the sports update, like what a great life that would be. And and that was my that was really the beginning of it for me. That was my very first day. I don't think I got paid that day because I think I was just observing. Um, so I didn't start getting paid my six fifty an hour until I came in to start actually assisting. But that was my very first day in any meaningful way in the industry. This would have been late August of nineteen eighty nine, and you were the anchor, and you were very nice to me then, and you were subsequently very nice to me for the remainder of the seven years that I continued working in Chicago and beyond.
0: When we had to go from wherever we were, the newsroom to the studio, you had to call an Uber. There were no Ubers back then, but it was a long trip. It was a harrowing trip. It's like you looked at the clock and suddenly it's like, I'm on the air in a minute. Jeez, you got to run to get there.
1: Uh, and, and, And it was such a great, those were such great days for me. I mean, if there's one thing I think I've done really well in my professional life is that I think, I have, I have done a good job of really observing. Like in my, in my young life, I wanted to be an actor. And my problem is I can't act, I can't sing, and I can't dance. I'm terrible at all of those things. And, and so I was never going to be an actor, but I wanted to be. And one of the skills that an actor has is observing. And I think I've always done a good job of observing successful people, people that I'm around, and learning about what makes them successful. And so in those days... At WMAQ, it was you and it was Tom Green and Ron Gleason mm-hmm. and Steve Olton. And I learned a lot from just watching you guys and how you did it. You all had kind of your own different styles. And um, and I learned a lot from that. And, and it was from that job that I ultimately got a job at The Score, where, where you and I subsequently went in 1992, I guess it was. Um, and um, And that obviously was a big thing for me. Um, And then we started learning, I started learning from the people over there, but I I definitely started learning how to do this. My first education in how to do sports, particularly on the radio was from you and the other guys at WMAQ and it was invaluable.
0: Before we get into your memorable stay with us here in Chicago, I wanna clear this up right from the get go. You are a self-described metrosexual. I honestly never heard of the term until you first used it years ago. So tell me a story I don't know about being a metrosexual. Matter of fact, what is a metrosexual and where do I sign up?
1: <laughs> so um, a, a, a metrosexual was a much nicer word um, for what they used to call people like me, which was a narcissistic pretty boy. Um, <laughs> I'd much rather be a metrosexual. Um, well, I mean, I will tell you a story Uh, that when I would come to work in the newsroom at WMAQ at the Merchandise Mart, and you remember what it was like there, it was, and this was before any radio was on TV. So no one was going to see anybody. I wasn't even on the air, so it wouldn't have made any difference. But, um, you know, nowadays, a lot of radio shows are on TV and stuff like that, or, or someone is shooting it for a podcast or a simulcast or whatever it might be. So there were no TV cameras. There were no cameras of any kind. So this was at a time when no one would care what you looked like, the news anchors, and you remember them, Steve Yant and Pat Cassidy. And sure, I do. People. They'd be in jeans and sweatshirts. No one was dressed up. And I would come to work there every, every single day in a jacket and a tie um, because that was what I thought you should do when you went to work. My dad told me that you will never, ever regret being overdressed. You might regret being underdressed. And my dad was, this was sort of his with the way he lived his life my father when we went to football games would wear a sport jacket we would go to basketball games he would always wear a suit um it's just the way he was and I and I got that from him um so I started there people used to make fun of me in the newsroom all the time um for the way I would dress but I just kept doing it um and and I've always been that way I've just always cared probably more than anyone else does about how I look and, and how I'm presenting myself and um, it worked out well for me because when you mentioned Mike and Mike, like the, the juxtaposition, like here's a perfect example of it. The first time that Mike Olick and I went on the David Letterman show, I wore a suit and a tie. He wore a shirt that said Dr. Pepper on it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is He'd gotten it for free at a charity golf outing. And on the sleeve, on the little sleeve of it, it was a golf shirt. And on the sleeve of it, it said Dr. Pepper. And it, But it, would, it made for a very good juxtaposition between the two of us. And, uh, Mike, I'm sorry we don't have time for you. (laughs)
0: That's how I like
1: it. (laughs) It's the story of my life. Uh, How did you guys get together? I was thrown off the Stuyvesant High School chess team for being too unathletic. (laughs) So they wound up throwing us together because you need a ball player, and and we couldn't do any better than him. And then you need someone who's a fan because Mm -hmm. the reality is, Dave, you know, the players, they come and go, but we're still sitting there. I'm still sitting in my seat, so that's what I do. All right, and uh, we're right now, uh, I think the World Series is pretty good. Don't you think so? Oh, absolutely. So being a metrosexual, which I was and I am, you know, uh, I think has actually benefited me, and people accuse me of playing it up, and I suppose at different times in my career when it's been beneficial, I have, but the truth is the truth, and, and I do. I, I am I'm, People also will sometimes associate my germophobia with that, which I am very germy, um, and, and so I, I, sometimes I put those two together. They probably aren't the same thing but there are sort of shades of similarity between the two, so I'm a germophobic metrosexual. That's pretty much what I am.
0: Well, let's, let's take it a step further. You're, okay, so you're a germophobic metrosexual and apparently a very superstitious sports fan. Oh. Why, does this, why does this not surprise me? So I gather there are several stories I don't know about this aspect of your complicated and interesting life.
1: Well, so, so right now, if you were to come to my house, for example, As we record this conversation, my beloved Northwestern Wildcat football team just won a thrilling game over the weekend against Iowa. And if you had been in my house while that game was on, then you would have known that when things started going well, no one was allowed to move. No one was allowed to move from the seat you're sitting in. You can't come into the room if you're not in it. You can't go out of the room if you are in it. Things are going well. We're doing well. And I firmly believe in that. I firmly believe that there is some impact of that. I believe in the golf gods. I believe in the traffic gods. What, I mean, what is the last time that you were not if, if My old the, the, uh, of all the highways in Chicago, the one I always hated the most was the Eisenhower. Mm-hmm. Because when I worked at CLTV, I had to take the Eisenhower all the way out to Oak Brook um, every day from my apartment in the city. And because of those two, and I, I don't know if it's still the same way, but in those days, there were two left-hand exits. Austin and Harlem were both exits on the left side. And it seemed to me no one on planet Earth knew that. So by the time we're getting, every single day, no matter what time of day it was, there were always people trying to get left because they just figured out they need to in order to exit there. And so there was traffic on that Eisenhower every damn day. In fact, the last day I worked at CLTV, I know this is a digression, but I will get to the point of the story. The last day I worked at CLTV, I'm driving home, it was a Sunday night. And I rolled down the window of my car, and I just screamed expletives at the Eisenhower Expressway. I just (laughs) yelled out my window at how much I hated that highway. But anyway, the point of it, the story is this, that there is no point when you are driving, if you are driving down the Eisenhower, that if you speak the words aloud, boy, we're really making great time, what is immediately going to happen? You're going to be in a a parking lot two minutes later. (laughs) I firmly believe in all of that. And here's how I come by it. I come by it very honestly. So I come from a family of New York Jets fans. I grew up in New York City, and my parents had New York Jets season tickets from before I was born. And in January of 1982, so I was 14 years old, the New York Jets made the playoffs, and they made a deep run in the playoffs. It was the strike year, so there was an additional layer of playoffs. So the Jets actually won two playoff games and then made it to the AFC championship game. So the night of the first playoff game, my family went, the Jets won. They beat Cincinnati. My family went to a restaurant on Irving Place in New York City called Pete's Tavern, and I ordered the spaghetti with sausages. And my father decided that that worked. So we were going to eat there every night until the next game, and everyone had to order the same thing.
0: Everybody's superstitious.
1: My entire family, all four of
0: us.
1: (laughs) My father, my mother, my brother, and me. So I ate that dish in that restaurant every night for that week. Then the Jets went. The following week, they played the Raiders in Los Angeles, back when they were the L.A. Raiders. And they beat them. Jim Plunkett was the quarterback of the Raiders. A linebacker named Lance Mel intercepted him twice in the fourth quarter. And my father said, we have to keep doing it. So we kept doing it. So for two weeks, then they went to Miami and wound up losing the AFC championship game, 14 to nothing on a rain-soaked field, and that was the end of that. But for two consecutive weeks, every single night, we ate in the same restaurant, and we all had to order the same dish. So that's where I learned this insanity. It then reared its ugly head again when several years later, so this would have been, it was 1986, January of '86. The Jets make the playoffs again. They beat Kansas City in the first round of the playoffs. They go to Cleveland, and they have Cleveland dead to rights. The Jets are way ahead in the game. They are The game is basically over. The winner of this game is going to go to Denver to play in the AFC Championship game. The game is basically over. My father picks up the phone and starts calling the airline to try and book us plane tickets to fly to Denver. We're going to go. We're going to see the Jets play in Denver in the AFC Championship game. And what happens, Mark Gastineau roughs the quarterback, Bernie Kozar, on a fourth and 15, keeps that drive alive. They wind up going down, scoring, tying the game, and they beat the Jets in double overtime. My father, to his dying day, never forgave himself. Never forgave himself because he was convinced, convinced, that the fact that he was on the phone with the airlines, was the reason the Jets lost that game. Oh, so I have maintained this era of, oh. Uh, oh, I'll give you another one. I'll give you another <laughs> one that took place many years later. This is this is about my father now, not about me. The Jets make the playoffs in 2010, January of 2010. My parents have, have by this time re, uh, retired to Coronado, California. They live outside of San Diego, California. And my father goes back and forth a little bit. So my father is in San Diego. He is supposed to fly back and, and to New York and do whatever he's supposed to do. The Jets wind up playing San Diego in the playoffs. They're going to San Diego to play there. I say to my dad, Dad, push your flight back a week. I'll get you tickets. You'll go to the game and you go see the Jet game in, in the playoffs in San Diego. He said to me, I'll never forget it, Michael, if I change my plans and go back next week, there's no question the Jets will lose. And so he flew back. Instead of going to the game, the Jets were playing in San Diego. He flew back to New York and watched the game from New York on television rather than going because he was convinced that if he changed his plans, it would have been the reason the Jets lost. I know, by the way, they wound up winning that game. So maybe, just maybe, he was right. So I have been incredibly superstitious about sports and other things, but primarily sports all of my life, and those are the reasons
0: why. Vienna beef, two words synonymous with hot dogs. They're the home of the Chicago hot dog and an institution since 1893. If you've had a hot dog, chances are it was from Vienna. And did you know there are more locations selling Vienna in Chicago than McDonald's, Burger King, and Wendy's combined? There's nothing like biting into a juicy and delicious pure beef Vienna hot dog dragged through the garden, which includes yellow mustard, onions, relish, tomatoes, sport peppers, pickles, and some celery salt. And oh, those Polish sausages dripping with flavor. And look for the spicy smoked sausage available in your local retail stores. It includes a perfect blend of seasonings such as crushed red peppers and brown sugar, creating a bold and zesty taste. Vienna products are available in restaurants, grocery stores, and entertainment venues such as the ballparks, cup. And socks, stadiums, museums, and zoos. Plus, you can purchase them online, coast to coast, at Viennabeef.com and on Amazon. And remember, Vienna is not just hot dogs and sausages. Look for their farm makers' chili, mini bagel dogs, condiments, and classic deli meats. Take it from a guy who was weaned on, then sold Vienna products. It's the mark of excellence since 1893. Check them out at Viennabeef.com. Want to hear more great guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know? It's easy. Just follow me on social media, at George Hoffman. That's O-F-M-A-N. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And please follow or subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, let me tell you a story you don't know about Greenie and I. And it has nothing to do with our weddings. We were one of the last hires at WSCR The Score, the first all-sports radio station in Chicago, which made its debut in January of 1992. I would become the principal anchor and reporter, but you were a a jack-of-all-trades, a producer, an anchor, a reporter. And in 1994, I was sent to Mesa to cover the Cubs in spring training, but you were asked to cover Michael Jordan. Only it was in Sarasota, where he was making his debut with the White Sox. So tell me a story, Greeny, I don't know about that very unique experience. Oh, well, that that was one of the best experiences I've ever
1: had, um, was following Michael around.
0: On the ground, fair ball. And Jordan with an RBI single. How about that?
1: The day we get down there, his first day, There must have been 200 reporters. Um, Ted Koppel hosted Nightline from the ballpark. It it was one of the biggest stories. It was jam-packed, mobbed. Within two or three days, there was the Chicago Sun-Times, the Chicago Tribune, the Daily Herald and me. And that was it. So it went from 200 reporters to four in about three or four days. And I had a rented car, And we were in Sarasota, Bradenton, that complex there was called Ed Smith Stadium. Mm -hmm. The three newspaper reporters all had the budget to stay in the hotel in Sarasota. There was only one hotel in Sarasota then, and it was the Ritz-Carlton, which is where Dick Vitale now has his big event every single year. The score, we didn't have the budget to put me there because I was there for six weeks. So we rented me a room on Siesta Key in a six bedroom house, I literally just rented, I just had a room in a house. The other five occupants of this house were women, I'm gonna say median age 87. Yes, <laughs> the key Florida is. And I'm living in this house. Now you remember what our job was then, we'd have to call in and do live reports on the radio. Yep. And we were just using, there were no cell phones. So I would pick up the phone in this house, which was just one line that everybody would use, and there were times when I was on the air and one of the women in this house would pick up the phone and start dialing. And I, <laughs> I finally had to leave. And there was a pay phone across the street from the house I was living, and I would go and I would do my reports on the air from there, because um, this was ruining my ability to be live with: Are you, are you saying are,
0: are, yeah. are you saying you're trying to do a report?" and then suddenly you hear, "Hello, Sil?" Exactly.
1: That's literally exactly what it was. These are rotary phones, and the women did not understand what it was that was happening. They, they don't understand that I'm on the radio, and what does that even mean to them? So, so that, that's where I lived during this time, and I just schlepped up and down the west coast of the state of Florida in, um, in, uh, in, in a rented car. But my favorite story about the experience of covering Michael down there is one I have told a few times. But I, I, re- I like the story enough that, that I think it belongs here. So you might recall that Jordan did, went, I want to say 0 oh, for his first 18 or something like that. He did not get a hit for a while. And it was very embarrassing. And he was quite upset by it. And you remember there was a lot of criticism of him being there and criticism of the White Sox. And Sports Illustrated had a cover that said, Michael Jordan and the White Sox are embarrassing baseball. It was, it was, there was a lot of negative stuff going on and Jordan has not gotten a hit. And we are all, again, the four of us reporters, they were in some little ballparks. I forget where they were in Port Charlotte. I don't remember what town we were in, but it was on the road. And it was a rainy night. One of these rainy nights that you think the spring training game is going to get called off, but they wind up playing. And so there couldn't have been more than 300 people in the stands and the four reporters. And Jordan comes up, and they, he, he, he swings out of his shoes and gets fooled on a pitch. He thinks it's going to be a fastball. He gets completely swings out of his shoes, manages to top it directly into the ground, a little dribbler up the third baseline, and he beats it out for a base hit. So it's his first hit. He's finally gotten a hit. So the game ends, and we go down – the four reporters that are there, we go down to interview him. And I walk in the clubhouse, this tiny little clubhouse. They're smaller than the locker room in my high school. And Jordan, they are dumping beer on him. And you remember, those were good White Sox teams. That was Frank Thomas and uh, Jack McDowell and Robin Ventura and right. Alex Fernandez. Uh, those those were good teams.
0: Yep.
1: But anyway, they're giving him a beer shower. They're pouring cheap beer on him. He is stripped to the waist. He's got his baseball pants on, no shirt he's holding a a bat over his shoulder and they're pouring beer all over him. And they, you know, finally when that ends, the four of us, the reporters go over, we ask him a few questions. He's happy, he finally got his first hit. And we're walking out to go do what we have to go do. You know, they're gonna write their stories and I'm gonna file my reports. And something moved me to turn around and look at him before I walked out the door. And it is a vision I'll never forget. He's sitting on a bench, in this tiny little locker room with a cigar stripped to the waist, again, covered in cheap beer. And he had a a smile, a look of satisfaction on his face that I thought rivaled. Now I was in the locker room when he won NBA championships and I'm telling you, there was a look of satisfaction on his face that was, that rivaled anything I had ever seen from him before. Because this was something that he had set his mind to and wanted to do so badly. And I have many times told that story and said that to me, the lesson I learned from that is that in life, you can't just celebrate when you smash one off the left center field wall and you go in for a stand-up double. You got to celebrate the dribblers. You got to celebrate the little dribbler up the third base line because life has a lot more of those than it does, you know, grand slam home runs. And that I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. And I knew then that he was going to go back to basketball. I didn't know when, but I knew he would. Because I knew I could see from his face that he was satisfied with having done that. And it took him a year, but I knew he would go back to playing basketball because I knew that down deep in his heart, he knew he wasn't going to be a great baseball player. But that look of satisfaction that he had on his face that night is, um, is something I've never forgotten. And of all the years I spent chasing Michael Jordan around. That is one of my, if not my absolute favorite memory.
0: Well, there has to be also a tremendous look of satisfaction on your face. And you're gonna have to correct me on this if I'm wrong. Either ESPN recruited you or you vice versa. But in 1996, you left Chicago for ESPN. Tell me a story I don't know, how your life changed in ways I'm not even sure you can comprehend. Well, so, um, I got.
1: I, I went to audition. So the, I, I was anchoring at that time at CLTV. So I was at the score, as you were from from January of '92. When I started, I was purely a producer. I was. I would produce the um, the midday show, which was Mike North and Dan Jiggets, and the afternoon show, which was Terry Bores and Dan McNeil and Brian Hanley. This was before it, um, it became just the Heavy Fuel Crew show.
2: Mm-hmm. Each
1: of those shows had their own primary producers. Jesse Rogers produced the middays and Judd Surratt produced the afternoons. And then they had a floating person who would kind of help out on both shows, and that was me. So I helped out on both shows. And I was always begging the news director, the sports director, Ron, Ron Gleason, and other people to let me go over to, to Chicago Stadium after my shift and maybe do some, you know, get some sound from the Bulls game or the Blackhawks game or whatever it was and file a report that would run in the morning on Tom Scher's show. And they let me do it every now and again. And eventually, um, Tom share was really instrumental in that Tom share when, when they decided that they needed someone to do full time updates. So, so, so George, this is another place, another place in which you were instrumental in this case, I think um, not purposely, but when the score first started, they had no one doing updates. No one would be in there doing the sports at the top and the bottom of the hour. Or 50- That's
0: correct. 50- it, it took about four months for them to do it. Yeah,
1: You were the reporter. You would yep. cover all the games. They decided they needed someone to do the sports reports, so that became you. And that job, the job of being out there covering games, became available. And Tom Scher, whom I will never, ever be able to repay, said to Ron Gleason, this kid, Greenberg, that you have, he can do that. Let him try. And so I'm 24 years old, and they sent me with Jordan to to Cleveland to cover the Eastern Conference Finals. And that's really how it started. So I started, I became sort of the score's roving reporter and I would host every now and again, but primarily I was just out there doing reports on things. And I subsequently parlayed that into an anchoring job, a sports anchoring job at CLTV. So I was at CLTV for about a year. And then I got an audition, ESPN started ESPN News in the summer of 96. And I got an audition, and so they flew me to Bristol, Connecticut. And I went in and I auditioned, I did an 11 minute audition and I then went I came back to Chicago and CLTV sent me to Platteville Wisconsin which you will remember well when the Bears I try to forget it now and then (laughs) I loved it I loved going to Platteville I loved those times covering uh, you mean
0: you mean the times when you'd get fairly close there and all you could smell was manure (laughs) you know I loved it
1: I was so thrilled to be there Mike Ditka was the coach and and, I mean, those teams were so legendary, and I got to be around them. And then we would go to those bars at night, and all you guys were there. All the, You know, I was a kid, and all these reporters, people I watched on TV and listened to on the radio and read in the newspaper were all in this bar drinking beer, and every once in a while the players would sneak out after a curfew, and they would come into the bars. And anyway, I loved it there, but whatever. I was in Platteville, and I got a call um, telling me that ESPN had offered me a job. And um, it changed my life in more ways than I can begin to count. But what I will tell you is, on my first day, I used to keep a journal. It subsequently, that journal became my first book. But I kept a journal. And on my first day, I wrote in the journal, um, I started ESPN today. This is going to be life-changing. But if it costs me Stace, it will not have been worth it. Hmm. So I was dating my my then girlfriend, Stacy, at the time, but we were not engaged. We'd only been together for about six months. I moved to Bristol, Connecticut. She wasn't moving there um, with me. We Again, we weren't engaged or anything like that. And um, she had a pretty successful career of her own going. She, at that time, was working at Hyde Hotels in Chicago doing marketing. And so we commuted for almost two years which included almost six months, basically the first six months of our marriage. And I would go back and forth and back and forth. And that was how that all started. So that's one of my favorite stories about how I began was I knew that it wasn't worth it no matter what came of it, if it cost me that relationship in my life. And, and I think I learned a pretty valuable lesson from that, which is that you know, professional success is, is delightful. And I'm, I'm very, very grateful for all of the, the good things that have come to my life from that, but they aren't the most important thing in my life. And, um, and that was one of the ways that I, that I learned that lesson. So I have looked back at that journal where I wrote that, and I'm, I'm proud that I thought to write that when I was 29 years old.
0: And I'm positive I was right. Did you know General Motors 2021 Supplier of the Year is located in Hillside, Illinois? Dynamic manufacturing not only remanufactures transmissions for the likes of GM, but also has a state-of-the-art facility. Its capabilities include engineering new or existing products, along with manufacturing, machining, logistics, and re-energizing used batteries for electric cars and energy storage systems. I've seen their operation firsthand, and their nearly 1 million square feet of operating space is extremely impressive. Dynamic was founded by the late, great John Partipillo in 1955 and is still family-owned and operated by the next generation. For more information about Dynamic Manufacturing, visit their website at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. Dynamic Manufacturing. Honor the legacy. Pioneer the future.
2: What's the easiest choice you can make?
1: This is not, in my mind, a referendum on LeBron is better than Michael. But it is a referendum on Michael is not better than LeBron either. You can't be better than this guy is. He continues to play better and better at an age where every historical great has started going in this direction. He's going in this direction. He's playing better than he ever has right now. And yet immediately go to Twitter when these games end, and all you get are people (laughs) knocking LeBron James for no reason.
0: With ESPN's Mike Greenberg on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You attended Northwestern, where I've seen your ESPN cohort, Mike Wilbon, several times. During your time there, the Wildcats football team was, well, shall we put this, not so good. But there was a quarterback there named Mike Greenfield, which sounds as if maybe people could confuse Mike Greenfield with Mike Greenberg. Tell me a story I don't know about the two of you. You're going to love this. So... <laughs> <laughs> my
1: all through my high school years I played the trumpet and I was in the the uh, in high school in New York City I went to Stavison High School in New York City and there was a symphonic band and I played the trumpet in that for four years. And so my orchestra teacher whose name was Miss Max Watres, Mr. Watres, is no longer with us, but of all the teachers that I had in school over on my entire high school experience, he was the one I was closest to. He wrote my college recommendation and the funny thing about him was he always called me greenfield he got my name wrong all the time four years i sat in his classroom or in his in the orchestra room four years i played multiple solos and my my parents would laugh about it every time i played a solo in in one of our pieces at one of our recitals or concerts he would say and the trumpet solo there was played by mike greenfield he got my name wrong all the time (laughs) so i go to northwestern my freshman year at Northwestern, the quarterback, as you said, and he was a pretty good player, was a kid named Mike Greenfield, who was a senior when I was a freshman. And the very first game that we play my freshman year, they played, we played Northern Illinois, and we won, and Greenfield had a huge day, and he was named the Big Ten's Offensive Player of the Week. And so there was a little article in the paper that said Mike Greenfield named Big Ten Offensive Player of the Week. And so I cut that out of the newspaper and I mailed it to Mr. Watrous. And I said, this wanted you to know how well I'm doing in college." And I'm sure that he was the most confused person in the entire world because there was no conceivable chance that I could have been the quarterback on the football team and he wouldn't have known it a and B there was no conceivable chance that I was the quarterback on the football team because I'm me. So I'm sure that always confused him and, I felt a little guilty about it, but I also laughed a lot. And that is one of my favorite stories. He was my favorite teacher, and um, that is one of my favorite stories.
0: You know, with all that you were doing in front of a camera and behind the microphone, you also found time to write six books, several of which were on the New York Times bestsellers list. Tell me a story I don't know about one of them, entitled All You Can Ask For in which you donated all the proceeds to the V Foundation for Cancer Research.
1: Still do, 100% of the author's proceeds. That book still sells pretty well during uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, so uh, in, when my daughter Nikki was in preschool, we befriended, she had a little classmate, a kid named Walker. And um, so the kids were two. And Walker's mom was a woman named Heidi. And she was the first day that we brought our kids. We dropped off our kids to school for the very first day. And that's a traumatic day for parents. Um, we dropped off Nikki at school for her first day. And Stacy was out to here pregnant with our son, Stephen. And Heidi was out to here pregnant with their daughter, Georgia. And as out to hear pregnant women tend to do, they kind of sought each other out and became immediate close friends. And Heidi became one of our family's closest friends. Our families traveled together for years and became incredibly close. And um, in 2009, um, Heidi was uh, diagnosed with breast cancer. She had pain in her back. And she did all of the things that you would do if you had pain in your back. She went to a chiropractor. She went to a doctor. She went to this and that. Ultimately, someone says we really should do a CAT scan. And it turns out that she had breast cancer that had spread to her bones. Mm. And she was basically given a death sentence. And she died on September 30th of that year at the age of 43. And I was sitting at her memorial service, which my wife organized, at the Westport Country Playhouse, which is a huge and beautiful theater in Westport, Connecticut, where we live. And I was sitting directly behind her kids Walker was nine at the time and Georgia was six. And I remember feeling more angry than I've ever been in my entire life. It it was the most unjust thing I had ever watched happen up close. Like she was the healthiest, most delightful person you ever met. She did not smoke. She was incredibly athletic and outdoorsy. She loved to ski. She was just fabulous. And it was so unfair. And that night, we went home, and I said to my wife Stacy, "I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book about women living with cancer, and we're going to donate 100% of the proceeds to the B Foundation." And I did. And to date, we've donated well over $200,000 in her name. We started a charity called Heidi's Angels, and we have donated all of that money in her name, and we will continue to. Um, so the book is called "All You Could Ask For." And if if anyone listening to this conversation buys it whatever portion of the proceeds go to the author, that money will be donated to the B Foundation to combat breast cancer. And, um, you know, it w- she, she was, um, you know, her kids now, Walker uh, is in college. Georgia just graduated and is taking a gap year because of the COVID. Um, but, you know, they've grown up and, and and they're doing great. And her husband, Adam, is doing great. And um, But there's a little piece of me that has never kind of gotten over that. There was a... Um, there was sort of a feeling that um, that there was just that there should be more justice than that in the universe. It really kind of shook me to my core, and um, so that's an experience that I that I've never really fully, totally, uh, emotionally gotten past. And so I'm I'm extremely proud of that book, and I'm extremely proud to to donate money to the Bee Foundation and and I will continue to do so until they cure the disease.
0: You know, it's a sad story, but it's got, it's a positive story as well, the way you reacted to it.
1: Yeah, it was, you know, well, so, so I wrote in that book, there was a, there was a character in that book who was um, sort of reflective of the way I felt. And I wrote in that book that anger is the most motivational of emotions. <laughs> you know, anger is what starts and ends wars and, and all, you know, like anger makes you do stuff. And, um, you know, my first idea was that I was going to run a marathon and, and, and sort of try and make, um, you know, solicit donations for that. And then I had the idea to do the book, as I say, after the memorial service. And, um, so, yeah. So, yeah. There, I mean, something good came out of it. And her family is really proud of it. I mean, we've talked about it a million times. So She's been gone 11 years now. Um, so we've talked about it a lot over the course of time. But um, there's nothing about that story. There's nothing about thinking about her that will that I will ever feel anything
0: but sad. So, I get a chance to uh, to dance with your bride, Stacy, mm-hmm. which, as you mentioned, it, it, you've already departed for ESPN, but the wedding is here, and this is the first and the last time I've seen her. Now, since then, two kids, one who attends Northwestern, one who might do the same, and a career a lot of people would be very envious of, Greeny. So, tell me a story I don't know, how the other Greenies have endured all of this.
1: Well... You know, the, the the best thing about my career hosting Mike & Mike, so when I got to ESPN in 96, I was an anchor on ESPN News, and then eventually worked my way to where I was anchoring SportsCenter, and that was at that time what I thought I wanted to do. And they came and offered me the job hosting mornings on the radio with Mike Golick, and my initial inclination was that I didn't think I wanted to do that, that I, I wanted to be a SportsCenter anchor, and I didn't think that there was – Going to be a lot of longevity in that radio show. But of course, I ultimately did do it. And of course, I was delightfully, I was very wrong. And so I wound up doing it for 18 years. Better than ever, Mike and Mike Shane, welcome to Chicago. Finally, the day is here, and we are live at Harry Carey's in appropriate places tonight. We have one of the great events on the sports calendar, the NFL Draft. And if you're excited for that, you have come to the right place. We got Shaftes coming by, we got Lewis Riddick, we got Nick Shea, we got Gruden, we are ready to go. The first year that we went on the air, so we we launched that show in January of 2000. My daughter Nikki, the older of my two children, was born in September of that year. So throughout their childhoods, Stephen was born in December of of 2002. So he's going to turn 18 in a month. Um, So throughout basically the entirety of their childhoods, I had a job that ended at 10 o'clock in the morning. So I was at school pickup, I'm not exaggerating, every day. And uh, there is a chapter in my first book, which is titled All the Moms and Me, because it was everywhere I went, it was always all the moms and me. Mm -hmm. If there was a play date, it was all the moms and me. If there was a a park day, there there were no other men in our group. Um, I'm sure there were other men who were working from home at the time or who were not working were stay-at-home dads. This is not meant to be a... um, This is not meant to be a generalization. It is purely an observation about what was going on in my life at that time. Everywhere I went, it was all the moms and me, because my wife, Stacy, was working full-time in in an executive capacity at Starwood Hotels. And I was home with the kids, and, and I would pick them up from school, and it was the best. And so I wouldn't trade that for anything. So I would say I spent as much time with my kids when they were little as any working parent I know. And um, for that, I am forever grateful. And um, I, w- I continued doing it until they no longer wanted me to, until they became <laughs> extremely embarrassed by having their dad around so much, um, especially when their dad is making a fool of himself on TV and radio all the time. <laughs> they were mostly uh, embarrassed by me. So that, that, I would say, is probably the most important thing I can tell you about, um, about my family is that I had the opportunity to be around my kids so much when they were little. And my God, am I glad for that. Like, um, you know, when they get bigger and they go off and then Nikki goes off to college and all that, like, I'm just so glad I had that. I'm just so glad I had that time and I miss it. And it makes me sad thinking about it. And there are little pieces of it that like you never get over your kids growing up. I mean, it's, it's like a little piece of you dies, but, um, But there's so much like like being around them as much as I was able to be around them left me in a place where I had so many pieces that even if some of them die, like there's still so much left in there. So now I'm kind of rambling. But I I guess the point of the story is um, I was able to be with my kids because of my career, because of the specifics of my career. I was able to be around them a lot. And that's the best thing of all the great things about that job, which was a great job. That was the best thing about
0: it. You know, I ask this final question of all my guests. Greenie. what would you have been if not for the media? Well, as I
1: told you before, I would have. my, my dream in life was to be a, a Broadway musical star. <laughs> um, and I had two major hindrances, which is that I cannot sing and I cannot dance. <laughs> that's so, not good. That's not what I would have been. That's what I would have liked to have been. Um, that, that if you had said to me, if I could live my life over again and have been anything I wanted to be, that's what I would have been. I would have been playing Sky Masterson on Broadway in a revival of mm-hmm. Guys and Dolls, and I would have been up there singing Luck Be a Lady, and I would have been the happiest person in the world. Um, what I would have done, I'm sure, is go to law school. So my father was a lawyer. My, my parents were, first, I think you and I grew up somewhat similarly um, in that our, our families were Um, Jewish immigrants and Mm -hmm. um, how many generations were your
0: parents born in this country no no my parents were born in Europe
1: okay so my parents matter matter of
0: fact I'll take it one step further I have two brothers they were born in Europe so I'm the only one born here got it
1: so so I'm so I'm a generation um, ahead ahead or behind however it should be described of that so my grandparents all came here from Poland Mm -hmm. my parents were born here but they were born penniless they were born into abject poverty in the Bronx New York and the dream, I think, of all of, of, you know, families at that time, particularly in that ilk, were that the kids would go on to become doctors or lawyers or something like that. And my father was the hero of the family because he became a lawyer. And I remember when I told my grandma that I wanted to be a sports announcer, she said to me, Michael, why can't you be something good? Um, <laughs> it's a true story. Um, because the the dream then I think of certainly of Eastern European I, I can speak only for my own people but you know of Eastern European Jewish immigrants was that, that the children should be you know well educated and go on these kinds of in, what they could perceive to be incredibly prestigious professions medicine and law and so I think in my own mind I think the expectation of my family was always that I would become a lawyer like my father and I think that I don't know that I had a specific amount of time in my head, but I think I always figured I'll give this a try. I wanted to be a sports announcer. I'll give this a try. And at some point, if it's just obviously not going to happen, I'll go back to law. I'll go to law school and I'll become a lawyer. So I think that's probably what would have happened in my life if, if things had not progressed when I was you know, working in Chicago, if, if I don't know exactly how to guess how many years, if two or three years had gone by and it just didn't feel like I was getting anywhere, I think I probably would have gone to law school and become a lawyer. So I think that's what I would have been had it not been for the media.
0: Mike Greenberg, thank you so much for telling me a story. I don't know. Well, George, it is great
1: to reconnect and, and I'm, I'm so happy to hear your voice um, and I'm so happy to hear that all is well. And I hope that the next time we do this, we can do it in person over dinner and many drinks.
0: Sounds good to me, Greedy. My thanks to ESPN TV, ESPN Radio, and The David Letterman Show for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks to TJ Reeves for developing this encore week. Will Hatzel for some nifty editing, and Nick Tochi for our graphics. And to our wonderful sponsors, Dynamic Manufacturing. Find them at dynamicmanufacturinginc.com. And by Vienna Beef, home of the Chicago hot dog. They're at viennabeef.com. Tune in tomorrow when Encore Week continues with longtime NHL analyst Eddie Olchek on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.